Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Nizar Hassan, joined as usual by Benjamin Red and the biggest friend of the show, Taymur Azhari. How are you, Taymur? How are you, Ben? I'm very good, enjoying unemployment. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's uh, I, it's good to see you, my my former now former colleague. Uh, should should we just like get all of this out in in the open before we get started on the podcast? Yeah, or, I think that's a good idea. Yeah, all right. So if you've been paying attention to like Twitter, you probably know that I was fired this week, and then uh, Taymor resigned in solidarity with me. Thank you for that. That's uh, that's amazing. Anytime, I expect the same of you next time. I'm fired from any job. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't matter who. I'm I'm working for. I'm just going to exactly, resign exactly. in solidarity. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah it, it was. It was basically uh, also Antonia Williams, our, our uh, other brilliant colleague at the Daily Star, resigned in solidarity as well. And th- this was all basically over a uh, pay dispute at the Daily Star. We were uh, organizing a strike, and the strike ended up happening. <laughs> uh, right. But but it, it was really funny because it was uh, what Wednesday, right? Yeah. Uh, we 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 were deciding whether or not we were going to go on strike on Thursday, and we were uh, uh, all of us employees were in this meeting, and we were starting to vote on you know like well which way is it going to go, and it was sort of like it could have gone either way. We were we, we didn't know, and we got interrupted. The management came in and said, "Out now, get out of the conference room. We need it uh, for 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 their uh, meeting. editorial meeting, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is normal, whatever." Um, but but then during this interregnum, then while our meeting was interrupted, I noticed that I had an email sitting, uh, waiting for me. It was like the end of my shift, right? And this email was there and it said, it was from our editor-in-chief and it said, hey, uh, Ben, uh, we are not renewing your contract uh, at the end of the year. And as it turns out, today just happens to be your last day. So... Adios. At the end of my, at the end of, uh, uh, end of the day. And so, like, I got this email and of course I was in the newsroom and was just like, what the fuck? They just fired me, you know, uh, and announced yeah. to the newsroom. Uh, and that sort of set off this chain reaction where, like, maybe we weren't going to strike before then. Uh, but then a bunch of people were like, fuck this. Yeah. I we're mean, going on strike. It was just, I mean, it, it was sort of like unbelievable. You know, it, it was really one of those moments. Like, I remember hearing Ben just saying, oh, I got fired. And then I go over to his desk, look at his laptop. There's an email there basically saying that because of the financial situation in the country, they yeah. can renew his contract. And yeah, I mean, it was just a moment where like the staff just kind of like looked e- look at each other and were like, holy, holy shit, like this just happened. Got really angry and just like decided then to hold an- another meeting as our desk, um, just sort of talk about what we were going to, you know, the steps we were going to take. Uh, some people decided to walk out, like I, I decided to walk out that, that day and then we voted to actually hold the strike the next day as well. My colleague Antonia resigned that night. Uh, she just straight away went to Nadim and, you know, said uh, to our editor in chief and said, uh, you know, I'm I'm done. Uh, yeah. And uh, the next morning, the strike actually went forward. So we had people on the Lebanon desk. I think about nine, ten staff members uh, didn't come in uh, and a couple other people in the office, too. Uh, and I submitted my resignation shortly afterwards. And and yeah. And that was sort of it. I mean, it was crazy. It was a, it's crazy been a wild week. week. Yeah. 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 Although I, I would argue that the, the strike, you know, it, it seems to have worked mm. um, it, at, at least at least partially. It seems as though um, some people are going to get uh, some payments. I, I mean, some people in the office were six months behind in payments, you know, which, which is 
a huge deal, um, especially, you know, when you consider that the Daily Star is, you know, according to uh, the commercial register, basically owned by the the Hariri family. It's, right. it's controlled by Saad Hariri, who's, you know, a billionaire or a hundreds of millionaire now. I don't know, like fabulously wealthy, you know. Right. And so it's very, very uh, it, it's just insane, the uh, you know, to have a, a company like this that it they're not paying their their workers when it's owned by a billion like that yeah. that just doesn't make sense you and, know and the point i would add is that like Hariri has done similar things with his other media organizations and companies i mean you Absolutely. have saudi oger workers who are still waiting for their wages uh, future tv and future newspaper and in future tv and future newspapers cases the only the only reason they closed down in the end is because employees went on strike uh, and basically you know embarrassed Hariri and in the end he decided to close it down and it instead really instead of pay them yeah. in, instead <laughs> of pay them and and it's it's ridiculous because there's there's a conscious decision being made by Hariri and people in his family who also own stakes in the Daily Star and these other media you know organizations that they will work their employees for free even though they have the money to pay just because they think they can do that and that's why it's important to go on strike and take this kind of action uh, because it it's basically tell them no you can't do this and the only point i just you know not to go on on this for too long but i would add that after we you know after what happened after the strike after you know you were fired i resigned my colleague resigned Daily Star employees from like decades ago have have been coming out and basically talking about how they weren't paid or were paid late and this has been something that's been going on for years. So yeah, I would yeah. say that yeah, the, I mean, it's, it's not the economic crisis right now. I was, I was there in 2015, hmm. long before any like serious manifestation of the economic crisis. There was talks about some crisis about Saudi funding or whatever, but it was basically a crisis in the Hariri family maybe. But when I left in, in, in October, 2000, uh, the beginning of October 2015, I think it was six months that I was owed as well. And I wasn't paid the, these months till two months after I left. So it was eight months and I had to do obviously do all of these side jobs. And you guys know how demanding it is to be in a newsroom, especially if you're writing for online. It's fucking insane. It's like writing 10 articles per day if, if things are happening. And in 2015, we had all of, all of the you know protests happening and we were working till like 1 a.m., and not receiving any salaries and having to like do all of these side jobs or whatever mini gigs and be in debt to make ends meet so it's it's uh, it's such a chronic problem with the, with the daily star like they should just figure it out as soon as possible but more importantly like to me what was very triggering was the the, the firing of benjamin because you're taking part of i think like what i think is because you're taking part in organizing the strike rather oh, than because uh, absolutely. of nobody, nobody in the newsroom believed for a second that it was because of financial reasons or solely because of financial reasons. They, it, it, was, it was very clearly perceived as a message from management to the staff, don't even think about organizing here. Yeah. Mm, yeah. And I'm just wondering why we didn't, do, we didn't hold any strikes when, when it was like, when we were facing the same situation in 2015. So I don't know why. I think it's just that maybe there wasn't enough like communication among the workers that to, to, to organize such thing. I'm glad that this is happening now at least because uh, if the Daily Star will continue, it needs to have like, at least to respect its workers. If it's going to continue, so its workers need to be organized. Otherwise, it's uh, it's it's really embarrassing to see this. And the paper was released, right? And the, on the day after the strike. Yeah. Paper was released, but it was embarrassingly small, like tiny in its content. I, I didn't actually see it yet. I have uh, not read the paper. Someone picked, <laughs> so someone was traveling and he picked up the paper okay. and, and he told me like, it was the smallest like newspaper I've ever read. It doesn't right. matter I anyway. I heard there were a lot of pictures. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, it worked, uh, hopefully, and uh, hope everyone will get their salaries. Uh, and enough navel gazing here. Uh, on to the real news this week. 
what happened. I mean, everybody's talking about parliamentary consultations that are uh, scheduled to happen on Monday. We're, we're recording this on Sunday and we don't know what's going to happen, uh, which is really, really weird. Like the day before parliamentary consultations, you should basically know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen. And so we we need to sort of like sketch out a few different things that, that could happen. And sorry, just like the nature of things. If you're listening to this, you probably already know what happened, uh, but but we have to, you know, we don't yet. So we're going to go through the, the the possible ways that we think we, we see this happening. So we we've, we have a few different possibilities for who could be named tomorrow if the consultations go forward. And the front runner, of course, is uh, Samir Khatib, who, who we talked about briefly uh, last week. Uh, but it might be good just to like quickly explain why he is weirdly popular amongst the politicians yeah he sort of he sort of makes sense so when we were speaking about Muhammad Safadi we talked about him as like an older kind of Hariri uh, Samir Khatib is similar in a way so uh, Khatib first of all uh, his daughter is married to the son of the uh, general security director Abbas Ibrahim so you've got the the power ties going on there He's his comp- the company that he works for, Khatib and Alami. They do mo- a lot of their work in the Gulf, actually more than they work in Lebanon. It's only five percent of of their actual work in Lebanon. This is all according to Commerce du Levant. And Khatib also, I mean, if you talk about the projects he is involved in in Lebanon, he's worked uh, doing environmental impact assessments for the Bala Adam in Tanurin. Uh, he's also part of the oil and gas exploration that's going forward. Um, he's gotten a large government uh, contract, uh, about $260 million uh, for ele- electricity distribution in, in the Bekaa in Beirut. Uh, and if you know about sort of Lebanese politics, you know that the energy ministry and energy projects kind of are routed through the FPM, which basically means that his ties with Gibran Basile, the FPM leader, look quite secure. Uh, so he's got his hands on all these different, uh, you know, pies in the country. Uh, and he has the foreign connections with the Gulf that you kind of need to be the prime minister in Lebanon or you have had, you know, that, that you needed uh, in the past to become the prime minister of Lebanon. And just a, a funny kind of quote is like a couple of years ago when he was asked of his political ambitions, he sort of deflect, deflected and, and pointed to his company. And he said that, you know, basically service, you know, being in service of the country is not just by like occupying a ministerial portfolio. It's also by like, you know, private sector stuff. And that's why I, you know, Khatib and Harami, we're going to keep, you know, we're going to keep it based in Lebanon. Uh, Commerce de Levant then po- point out that the legal seat of the company, KA Holding, uh, was transferred from Lebanon to Singapore in uh, t- 2018, <laughs> July 2018. <laughs> the most convincing reason I think he's going to be prime minister is because he's 75. Uh, and that seems to just be the, be the main criteria. <laughs> A really old dude. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> So we have Samir Khatib, and then we also have recently we've heard the name Fuad Mahzoumi floated. He's, you know, an independent MP in parliament, a Beirut MP. Uh, we have Rayal Hassan, who's kind of in the background. We haven't heard her name too much. Uh, we heard it a, a lot a couple of weeks ago, and it's kind of been silent on that front now, but she still seems like a strong candidate. Hariri has hinted that he wants, like, a woman to lead the, you know, and to lead the cabinet, and, like, who could that be? Rayal Hassan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or it could be Hariri himself still. Right. right? Hariri, you can't rule out Hariri himself. Yeah, and, and so like there have been a lot of reports, and every, everything is just sort of like rumor and speculation, and we don't really know what what all is going on. But like there was a report yesterday that Basile had informed Hezbollah that they weren't that the FPM was no longer going to be backing uh, Khatib. Who knows whether that's accurate or whether that was you know something just thrown out there. Uh, Michelle Mouawad, who is an independent but who caucuses with the FPM in Parliament, said, "I'm going to name Nawef Salem mm. uh, uh, 
who, who has been blacklisted by Hezbollah said, uh, said we, we don't want this guy. <laughs> this guy who's in the FBM's block is saying, no, I'm going against that. And I'm going to name the, this other guy who is definitely not going right. to make it. And so you have this uh, you you have this weird sort of like breaking apart almost. It seems that like the, the politicians don't be, seem to be on the same page. Right. It's it seems like uh, there's gonna there, everyone is trying to make a political play out of this. Like usually parliamentary consultations are a rubber stamp, right? Absolutely. You d- you decide the prime minister ahead of time, mm-hmm. and then you get the parliament to go like, okay, we're gonna do the constitutional thing we're supposed to do, but everybody's already agreed to it. This time round, it seems different. This time round, it seems that different political sides are sort of playing different games at each other. Uh, and, and it'll be really interesting to see, A, if the parliamentary consultations do happen, and B, what what will happen, you know, if they do take place. Yeah, yeah. From from my perspective, it, it seems very, uh, you know, quite likely that uh, today, Sunday, we will hear that the parliamentary consultations have been postponed, precisely for this reason that, you know, they don't know yet what is going to go on? If you look back, I believe it was uh, uh, 2011 when uh, Hariri's uh, government fell. Immediately thereafter, President Suleiman called for parliamentary consultations, but then they had to postpone them because they didn't know who was going. Like the, there was a, mm. the, there was uh, at the time it was uh, Hariri versus somebody on the March 8th side, and and it wasn't until Walid Jumblat came out and said, "No, I'm going with Makati with the March 8th side," that parliamentary consultations were allowed to happen. And so it, that's just the thing with these things. They like to know what's going on beforehand before they do it. So it, it, it could go forward and there could be everybody, you know, making a play, which would be something pretty unprecedented, I think, in, in Lebanese uh, or, or in, in the parliamentary consultations, or they could just postpone things. And, and then the other thing with this is, is that on Wednesday, we have this meeting in Paris, you know, for the International Support Group for Lebanon about supporting Lebanon through this current uh, economic and financial crisis that we're facing. And and, and so it, it's entirely possible that they, they will come to some sort of understanding as well for parliamentary consultations tonight and go ahead and go forward with them because they like to have their house in order before they go to these international conferences, right? So any of these things is possible. We don't know. Sorry. Not enough information. And Basil said we'd have an, a happy ending, right, Nizar? Yeah, yeah. Basil was <laughs> Basil was uh, quite weird this week. He he, he held a press conference <laughs> apart from the happy ending just, thing just this week. <laughs> uh, so Basil met with with uh, Khatib and he said we're hoping to have a happy ending for all of this. Uh, I don't know what he's referring to anyway. <laughs> uh, but he held a press conference as well where he kind of outlined. All of what hap- has happened so far, basically saying that what we wanted was um, a technocratic government of people that are appointed by political parties and people from the Hirak, which means from the, you know, from the uprising. And it was rejected. And Hariri wanted a technocratic government without political affiliation, but headed by him. And it was rejected. And then he said he doesn't want a BPM. Uh, and he said that the Shia duo, which is basically Hezbollah and Amal, suggested a technopolitical government with Hariri as PM, which means the difference between this one and, Hari- and Basil's suggestion of a technocratic government appointed by political parties that this one would actually have politicians and technocrats and there would be there would be a kind of a distinction between the two so politicians would have certain ministries and other portfolios would go to technocrats uh, depending on their nature 
And then there was an agreement, Basile said, on a format where basically it's a government headed by a person that is fully trusted by Hariri, which is why Samil Khatib was suggested, where all political parties and the people from the uprising would participate according to their uh, sizes in parliament, etc. And uh, while each uh, and each party maintains the right to choose whether they want a politician or a technocrat in their ministries. And then after that, he went on for like, went on for like five, six minutes of saying like how the only thing that is uh, the only criterion for the FPM is basically that the government achieves things and that they are ready not to be in government. And they, he kept he kept talking about how the FPM is ready to basically sacrifice and make this major sacrifice and not be in the government. But he said we're not doing what the LF is doing without naming the LF. But he hinted at that. He said we're not doing as the others are doing, escaping responsibility. We're just making a, a sacrifice. Mm. At the same time, the government has to represent like Christians. So it, it it was a total mess. It didn't make any sense. But what we got from him is basically a confirmation of the previous all of the previous leaks about what the different political parties want. And uh, another interesting thing is that he outlined the kind of the agenda that is already agreed upon supposedly for the next government. He basically explained to us that there's no such thing as a, as a conflict over what the agenda of the government will be, which is what interests people, right? Mm. Like, people are in the streets because they want change. And this guy is saying, no, like, we already know what's, what the government will do. It will do the 2020 budget, and he didn't mention any change to that. It will do the reform paper. It will implement the reform paper of Hariri, which was rejected in the streets, obviously, with Hariri resigning after suggesting this reform reform paper as a kind of a rescue plan. Uh, the electricity plan, uh, the the waste management plan that people are protesting against and have been protesting against for, for a long time now. The SADR investments, which people are very critical about. The McKinsey plans, the oil and gas plans. Basically, he's saying that these this will be the agenda of the next government as if this is something that is accepted by everybody and he said the word everybody like agrees on these things so basically he's either you know manipulating what what is agreed upon or basically re-establishing that this thing about like how what the real policies of the government will be is something that is outside of discussion like people won't influence this this the only question for us is how the government is 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 formed in terms of representation and who takes which ministry and or what he says what is achieved which means that uh, you know each party like the fpm wants to have the elect the energy ministry to uh, to implement the energy plan the electricity plan specifically which he mentioned many times in his speech or whatever but nothing about like really changing any of the policies uh, according to to uh, to what people are demanding but he said that we need new fiscal and monetary policies in both in form and content. And if someone disagrees with that, then we prefer not to be in government. And I don't know what he was hinting at specifically, but he seems to be hinting at specific ministers because then he linked that just this sentence after that. He said, like, if someone wants to keep the corrupt ministers, uh, then we'll just stay out of the, the, the government, probably throwing, you know, shade at Amal movement and Ali Hassan Khalil in the finance ministry. But in general, as you were saying, there is no clear FPM position on this. And this is very, very surprising that they can't even get to one position. You have Michelle Daher from the FPM block as well saying, who is the head of this big um, potato chips company, Masters. Uh, <laughs> he said uh, Hariri must be prime minister or else the government will be overthrown in the streets during December. You have Mario Aoun from Shouf part of the FPM, he's saying that Samir Khatib is our candidate. And then you have Simon Abiramia saying, no, Samir Khatib is not our candidate. It's a total mess for the FPM. They don't have a clear position on this. Um, so, yeah, 
we really can't expect anything. And parties in general don't seem to have made a very clear decision. It almost seems like there's been a decision made not to have a clear decision, you know, or 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 maybe they're just, you know, they haven't been able to, you know, like, I don't know. It's strange to me. It's strange I mean, it's to so me. It's so weird that, that like, yeah. Hurry is going to nominate uh, Samir Khatib, but then his block, the future movement block, supposedly, according to reports, is going to nominate Hariri. Yeah. What? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah it, 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 it makes no sense. The one thing that we do know is that Hariri has gone and begged for foreign help again. <laughs> That's yeah, yeah. He, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, pivoting a bit to the economy. Like th- this is sort of the the thing that is. This is the real story that's going on in the country. All of this stuff uh, about parliamentary consultations and who's going to be the next prime minister. Like this, this is sort of like the elites like theater play or whatever uh mm-hmm. they're they're all just sort of like playing their game of checkers against each other uh but really what's going on is the world is fucking ending around us right uh finally like Haridi seems to have have gotten oh no no we really 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 we we don't have enough dollars to do imports and so he, he sent out this call to the u.s and france and china and russia and italy please give us import credits or something which i don't quite understand what that is or what exactly he's asking for from these countries uh, but it's very very clear that we don't have enough dollars to continue importing and and so we we need a lot of help and that's why uh you know france responded and said well let's why don't you come to paris we'll all sit down and we'll talk about this but i mean th- that's the whole thing though it, like is anything actually going to come out of this well it seems as though no right B- because the donors have b- made very clear like international donors have made very clear that, well, we want to see you guys do this sort of like crazy austerity reform plan first before we give you any money. And the, the government is for, I mean, it's a good thing. The government is unable to do that, uh, you know, enact, enact like true austerity, it seems. Uh, and, and so it's very unclear, like what could possibly happen on Wednesday. It's, it's just, uh, it's also a bit like embarrassing that every time we have any economic crisis in the country, we have to go to Paris and beg other like foreign countries for help when... Sometimes we can do some domestic policies that can help in that uh, in that in that sense. The same paradigm of like postponing the crisis. Yeah, what he's asking for is basically for these countries to send us some raw materials or, or some of the imports that we need for probably postponed payments, like as if they're lending us money, but instead of lending us money, lending us imports um, through letters of credits or whatever he, the instrument that they will choose. Uh, it's just basically postponing the thing. It might be helpful on the short term, of course, but it's not dealing with the origin of the crisis. Meanwhile, we didn't see really any 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 big changes in terms of um, the foreign exchange rate between the lira and the dollar this week. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, the, the the week before it was this crazy thing where you know it went up to like twenty three uh, two thousand three hundred lira to the dollar, um, and and this week it seemed to have come back down and stabilized. As of right now, it's stabilized at around two thousand. Now, stabilized being a very relative term here. But we, we uh, funnily, we uh, we had the president calling for prosecution of anybody who says like bad things about the lira, which like anybody who says the truth about the lira, yeah. uh, you know, I don't know, maybe they'll be prosecuted. I, this is totally unenforceable because everybody knows, you know, uh, you know, you go to ex- exchange shops and they're just busy, busy, busy all the time. Every day people want to know what is the rate today, you know, and there are their websites now, <laughs> LebaneseLira.org that, that tell you, you know, uh, this is this is what the rate is across the country. Um, uh, also, also we see, you know, prices getting higher. There's, there are lots of reports that, that, uh, that various markets have marked things up maybe more than they should. Mm. 
And we've also heard a lot of reports about tighter restrictions on dollar withdrawals from banks and even lira withdrawals uh, from banks, which, again, this is one of those sort of like all over the place type things. Different banks have different amounts that you can uh, withdraw. And it depends, like if you've got a platinum credit card, maybe you can like withdraw more or something. But in general, over the past week, we have seen a tightening, a lowering of these uh, of, of these limits, um, which, which is not not great, right? It just points yet again to the, the shortage of dollars in the country. Although BDL did actually do something this week. They uh, issued a circular that lowered interest rates on deposits to uh, 5% on deposits in US dollars or in foreign currency rather, uh, and 8.5% on Lebanese pound deposits. Um, and and this, this is sort of like... These are the maximums for the interest rates, but they didn't set any minimums. So it's they're basically saying that the, the, the previous maximums were basically double these amounts. So they basically have them. Uh, on US dollars, if you had a lot of money in the bank, you could get up to 10% or maybe 9%. On Lebanese pounds, you could get up to 15, 16%. So basically they, they, they cut them in half, but they didn't set any minimum. So which means that the banks can, can bring those rates much lower for certain accounts and keep them high for other accounts, which they already do because when you put more money they give you higher uh, higher interest rates so now the bank can lower the interest rates for small hold small deposit accounts like savings family savings etc and keep the multi-millionaires account uh, with high with high interest rates according to the ma- the new maximum set the, by the central bank and and just a quick reminder for our listeners the reason that bdl had these like or, or the banks had these super high interest rates uh, on deposits, it was it, it was financial engineering, right? It, it was we need to attract a lot of dollars into the country, so we're going to jack up the interest rates and promise to pay a lot of dollars that we don't have uh, to to bring to bring new dollars in to sort of prop up the system. And so uh, it and so for this reason, uh, or partly for this reason, this circular has been described like uh, Dan Azzi, friend of the show, uh, said it was like reverse financial engineering. You know, you're 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 moving things in the opposite direction. Um, it the the circular also did something uh, probably just as important. It said that on dollar deposits, both at banks and like that that you you or me might have at the bank, uh, but also at the deposits that banks themselves have at BDL for these dollar deposits, the interest that is paid on them is going to be paid half in dollars and half in lira, which is. <laughs> you know, a, a, a really, really big deal. It shows you that, you know, it, it, it's basically uh, uh, Riyad Saleme, the governor of the, of the central bank, coming out and saying, well, we don't have enough dollars to pay you we're, we're, or we're just unilaterally going to not pay as much dollars as uh, as we previously did. Yeah, keeping as much uh, as possible the dollars in the banking system. And, uh, and also we should note here that the official rate at the banks is still... The the one it's not two thousand it's still one thousand five hundred uh, around one thousand five hundred which is the, the the pegged rate so when they give you half of the interest rates in Lebanese pounds you're basically losing losing twenty five percent on that on on the on that exactly and also the BDL circular said that the banks should be reflecting the lower of interest rates according to its uh, new decision. Uh, and the determination of the interest rates that they give, uh, that they put on loans that we take from the banks. Uh, but they didn't set any specific mechanism how that should be calculated. So the banks have the freedom to do to cal- to recalculate things uh, as they wish, it seems. Because uh, the banks met just after this uh, decision was made. 
I don't think they actually met. I think they just prepared the statement because they already knew what the circle will be about. But it doesn't matter. The banks responded and they said they commit to do to to implementing decisions that the clear decisions uh, that we talked about, lowering interest rates and paying half dollars half Lebanese in the, uh, of on the interest uh, for dollar deposits. However, on the thing about reducing interest rates for uh, loans, they said it is definitely possible that this might lead to lowering interest rates. Um, so it's it seems to me that what BDL is doing is basically saving the banks in light of the shortage of dollars, but it didn't really save people who owe the banks money because we're in a situation now. The, 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 the most outrageous thing about the situation, in my opinion now, and according to what I hear from the streets, is that people are not allowed to bring to get their money from the banks, but they are uh, forced to pay their, their loans, right? So which doesn't make any sense. If your salary is going in the bank and you can't get it out, or whatever income you have, how are you going to pay back the loans that you have if you can't even pay the rent or the salaries of your workers or your basic uh, livelihood needs? So uh, it's a very it's a very outrageous situation in terms of how the banks are dealing with people and BDL's circular didn't really tackle that. Um, and it's a shame in my opinion. And and not only that, it doesn't really do enough even even to save the system, right? I, I, I agree with you. Like this is a recurrent theme that we've seen. Like those in power protecting themselves first. This is what we see yet again in this circular. But it's not even enough to like protect them <laughs> as well. Uh, there was a, a great piece in the Financial Times about this, and they they spoke to Farouk Sousa, who is uh, Goldman Sachs Middle East guy, right? And and he he described this uh, the BDL's measures at, uh, saying it's bringing a bucket to a wildfire. Yeah, not not nearly enough, basically. Yeah. And meanwhile, I mean, it's it's important to basically talk. I mean, like Nizar, when you were talking about the the stress that people have in their lives, you know, like their money is going in the bank, they can't repay loans. I mean, it's important to to paint a picture here. If you're Lebanese today, uh, you know, and you're you're like you know a salaried worker in this country, chances are you've been paid half a wage over the past month or two, or you've been laid off. If you've gone to the shop, you've paid 10 to 30% more, just, you know, even mm-hmm. even if they're just doing it based on inflation of, the, you know, a, a depreciation of the currency, and there's been more markups, you know, others, other, other shops, as you said, Ben, have put up prices more than that. If you wanted something as simple as fuel, you would have seen that gas stations were closed. If you go to the hospital, medical supplies are in short stock. You know, like this is the crisis that we are currently experiencing today. And that kind of anxiety will have effects. Uh, and that's why, unfortunately, at, at least uh, reports have said that we, we saw three suicides this week, which were tied to the economic situation in the country. Yeah, um, uh, Najif Leti, a man 40 years old, killed himself on Sunday. Danny Abu Haidar, another 40-year-old, uh, killed himself on Wednesday in Beirut. Um, and Nazi uh, Aoun, uh, 56 years old, uh, killed himself on Thursday in Tabnin in the south. And all, all three of these were reported to be suicides and reported to be connected, uh, at, at least in part, to the economic situation. I right. mean, one of the three deaths, uh, according to the to the testimony that I heard, is that the man was in the supermarket and he was paying for what he got. And the, the cashier person was telling him, you have to pay back what you owe. And he was like, I don't have the money. The bank is not giving me the money, etc. And they were uh, they got into this little bit of tension. And then this person at the cashier was humiliating him in front of everyone. So he went out of the supermarket and he shot himself. I mean, the essence of all of this is that the system is not 
it's not a financial crisis in like the abstract sense the system is crushing people's dignity when yeah. someone another another of these cases was uh, related to or um, the rumor is or the story is that it was related to this man not being able to give his daughter uh, what she needs which is 1000 lira what she needs for for her daily allowance for for school and it's just so painful how much uh, how much people in Lebanon are are dealing with in terms of like their dignity is being crushed uh, by, by really by by the arbitrary decisions of the banks and by the stupid and un- irresponsible economic policies of the succeeding governments. And here it's important to I think uh, for us to say the suicide prevention hotline one five six four in Lebanon one five six four. Yeah, we should also mention that just uh, yesterday Saturday somebody attempted to self-immolate in Riyadh Square, right right in front of uh, the Grand Sarai, the, the seat of government. It was. Thankfully, put out by the by the, by the people uh, standing standing yeah. around him. But uh, you, you were there, right? Yeah, it actually it happened right next to me. It was at the end of uh, a march, uh, a woman's march that took place yesterday. People were kind of standing around, and and then just like a huge like woof of smoke goes up next to me, and I just see people kind of screaming, and and then the sky is like on fire. Obviously, like in the moment, you don't know exactly what happened. Uh, they put him on the ground. They start like beating the fire on him, and and initially I thought, oh, this guy like just like caught fire maybe his hair caught fire he was lighting a cigarette i don't know something like that but then i noticed that the fire was like not going out like they were pounding at the fire and it was just staying on it took at least 20 30 seconds to get it off it it wasn't too severe uh and i heard from people that he's in stable condition at the hospital i mean this is this just uh really highlights the the importance i, I mean like like you say nizar like the, this is this is a crisis that is not abstract or anything and and it and it's more than just like this oh it's just a financial thing no it's very personal and and it just highlights yeah. uh, th- these things just highlight the need for everybody to be excellent to each other like have solidarity uh support each other you know because it's it's an extraordinary time it's literally a crisis that we're living through right now and and you have to have that that community that's the only thing that's going to save us yeah. and when people say when experts and economists say that people have benefited off of Lebanon's financial model over the past years and other people have lost from it this is what we're talking about. Yesterday, I was walking after the march, actually, after that happened, after the, the attempted self-immolation. I, I walked past the uh, Association of Banks in Lebanon, the headquarters, and there was still a, a banner hung up across the entrance, which read, I saw it Ashab al-Masarif, and it had blood spattered, sort of like paint blood spattered over mm-hmm. it, uh, which basically means like the mob of bank owners or the gang of bank owners. And this is what people mean when they do that. I mean, it's not just some like, fun like anti-capitalist you know lip service uh, it people actually right. really tie this crisis and the economic situation in this country to policies that have made banks you know seen banks rake in huge profits while average people have gotten poorer yeah yeah and you mentioned this banner on the on the station of bank it was part of the of, of, of one of the marches that we had this week in beirut so basically, the the protests are still happening uh, in Beirut. It's not as many people as you as you were saying in previous weeks. It's mostly now focused on public administrations and uh, especially in areas outside of Beirut. A lot of focus on public administrations and banks. Uh, people in some areas are going around just closing the banks uh, or you know putting pressure on them, reading statements from inside the banks, etc. In general, there's still some kind of momentum because on the news, you're still seeing, seeing every day people moving uh, um, a lot of like uh, different actions and, and some road blockage as well, but not major roads in the country. 
But we have the roads blocked for a totally different reason this week, which is not surprising at all because it happens every winter. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Thursday, we got another deluge of rain. And everybody say it with me. What happens? Floods! (laughs) Yeah. Because, yeah, the infrastructure is just absolute shit. And it's it's one of these things that happens, like you say, every winter, uh, like clockwork. Yeah. And everyone, you know, the point being made here across social media was security forces were brought in, heavy handedly removed protesters from streets because, uh, as all politicians and the army and security forces have been saying, the right to transport is a is a right <laughs> enshrined, you know, in in some declaration. National treaties. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Aya Majzoub, who works for Human Rights Watch here, she's their country researcher. She had a great tweet where she said, can, you know, can the people now sue the government for preventing their rights to <laughs> <laughs> of, of, of transport around right. the country. Exactly. I mean, literally, highways were completely blocked with water, like completely blocked. We saw basically like rivers uh, in streets. Someone yesterday pointed this this uh, this out on Twitter. Uh, there was this incredible scene where like cars were literally being flipped over by the floods. Yeah. In the background, a pristine poster of Hadidi. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, they, they can't get the basic infrastructure ready for for winter, and we see that every single year. And if you listen to this podcast, just listen to the la- last December's episode, and you will see us, and you will hear us talking about <laughs> the floods. It's just insane every single year. And one of the major um, protest actions that we we saw this week as well was the anti-harassment protest. It was a march from Ras Beirut uh, near the American University of Beirut to um, Marty Square. And it was basically inspired by feminist actions taken across different countries now and originally inspired by what uh, uh, feminist activists did in Chile with the flash mob that went very viral and the message uh, about sexual harassment during movements. And it's very relevant today because we have the very famous case of this guy called Marwan Habib and... Maybe Taimur, you can tell us the story because you have a nice angle for it. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. So Marwan Habib, actually, this this thing, Marwan Habib is a, a, an accused serial sexual harasser. Uh, so what happened is on on uh, on November twenty second, on Independence Day, uh, there was this big civilian parade, right, where like you had hundred thousands of Lebanese come out and sort of do the civilian parade in support of the revolution, you know, and basically everyone was marching through by like a profession. So Marwan Habib was actually leading the. Uh, sports sector workers march i was covering it that day and so i just took a photo of him as i was taking a photo of every single uh, you know march that passed posted on online and i started getting comments on the tweet like basically women alleging that this guy had harassed them and the comments kept building up and building up and building up uh, the next day i woke up to that picture basically screenshotted like in many different places posted on big social media accounts the thing kind of snowballed. I am not taking credit here at all, but I'm just saying like it's it's this weird thing which is like kind of tied to me in a way because some of the screenshots had my name on it with like oh, a, no. with like a, <laughs> you know so like there would be like a quoted tweet saying this guy is a serial sexual harasser and there would be like Taimur Azhari's tweet with like the pictures. So I was like oh, no. please guys like caution on that. But yeah, so so more than fifty women have come out uh, to accuse this guy of uh, sexual harassment and even rape. This uh, this story really like was one of the big stories of the past couple of weeks. Uh, and yesterday during this march, there were chants directly, you know, targeted at Marwan Habib. Uh, and and basically, the, this the claims of uh, sexual harassment against him, I think, is uh, a big uh, another big inspiration for the march that we saw yesterday. And 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 just to be absolutely clear, this guy is not a public figure, or he was not no. a public yeah. figure 
until like this past week, basically. Uh, and and uh, he was invited on a TV program also this past week. Uh, Jean Malouf, very, very popular uh, host. Uh, he had him on his program. And really, it was sort of like the floodgates open yeah. people calling in and, and talking about it, 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 it he was confronted with with all these allegations right right yeah i mean it, it was there were a lot of mixed reactions to that show because to a certain extent it, it was people said that it was good to see a sexual harasser or an alleged sexual harasser confronted directly by people who said that he had you know harassed them uh, but on the other side joe malouf was criticized for his kind of uh, you know, his the way he dealt with the show. At one point, Marwan Habib was like accused of having put ice cubes down someone's pants at a club, and Joe Malouf like made it seem very normal. He was like, "This is like this just happens at nightclubs." And so yesterday at the feminist march, one of the chants that I heard was "Yeskot Yeskot Joe Malouf," which is down down <laughs> with Joe Malouf, and and people were chanting that with like like serious fervor. <laughs> yeah, that was yeah. my first reaction to the to the to be honest to the episode I I I wrote on Facebook because I was I couldn't understand like how this person could be saying, "No, no, this is not sexual harassment. This is just a mean guy at a nightclub like putting ice cubes in in women's pants." It's just sometimes, you know, it's just a symbol uh, one sample of how ridiculous sometimes our our media hosts get in their um and their interpretation of things or their like uh, yeah uh, we have many examples about controversies related to Joe Malouf or to uh, Tony Khalifi the notorious uh, talk show host also in the past about just like putting their own projecting their own understanding of Values things that are very yeah, yeah. conservative or not very sensitive onto cases that they're dealing with. I just want to mention one more thing about the Feminist March, which I, I thought was, uh, you know, great to see, is the intersectionality of it. So we also had pro-LGBT chants, pro-trans uh, chants, and there was solidarity with domestic workers, most of, you know, most of whom in this country are female uh, and can't really, like, get out of the houses to join these types of marches. I, I spotted many, like, looking on from balconies, filming, uh, you know, smiling, uh, seeming like they wanted to be part of this. And it was nice to see that there was solidarity from the people marching. They recognized this and we saw signs and solidarity with domestic workers. And this too. is something we saw as well a couple of weeks weeks ago in the feminist march. Um, it was a bigger march and it was, I think the feminist march, that one and this, and this one about uh, harassment, are the most like interesting marches we've seen because it's the energy is so fascinating and the intersectionality as you're saying is so fascinating and the f previous one the feminist march had so many uh, chants that are you know that show the intersection of class oppression and gender oppression and sexual uh, oppression related to sexual orientation uh, to to race etc it's really it's a manifestation of of progressive politics in in, in like in the streets in the best way possible in my opinion so one other thing that we should mention that happened this week uh, before we leave is uh, th this issue with the nuns who were arrested and then released. And, and that's just it, it's a whole other story in and of itself. But yeah. So basically what happened is earlier this week, uh, a judge uh, ordered that 12 children be removed from uh, an orphanage basically because of mistreatment. And we're talking serious mistreatment here. I mean, the charges are feeding them expired food, making them watch pornography, what sexual harassment, assault and threatening them. Uh, oh, and God. and so basically, the judge like goes to get this his his ruling enforced, and the nuns resist, and they basically say that your law doesn't apply to us. We want the patriarch himself to order us to do this because they 
saw themselves as in service of uh, you know the patriarch or religious authority rather than the civil state authority. Uh, and so the judge actually doubles down and says, no, we're going to implement this. The ISF goes and raids the, the orphanage. They take the nuns into custody and they get 10 of the 12 minors that they were looking to get. Uh, the nuns are taken in for a few hours and then released, according to Lara Karame, who works with Legal Agenda and according to other reports. And there's two kids who apparently still haven't been handed over, which is incredibly strange. I mean, they're two minors who the judiciary have asked to be handed over to authorities, and they haven't been. Uh, and this association apparently has a history of this. They haven't let in social workers before, uh, who, like to interview the children. Uh, so it's obviously extremely troubling. And there just uh, there's one more tidbit to this, actually, which is also extremely worrying. Al-Akhbar reports uh, that information was put forward to the public prosecutor that this case, case actually involves child trafficking and that they were selling white kids for $30,000 and brown kids for $15,000. That is obviously not just not yet adjudicated, but Al-Akhbar is reporting yeah. that information uh, you know, of, of that kind was put forward to the public prosecutor's office. So obviously extremely troubling. And just to kind of tie this back into the economic situation in the country, uh, Lara Karame points out, the, the, who, who works with Legal Agenda, she points out that in Lebanon, 90% of children in residential care are not orphans. Uh, they're actually from the poorest families in the country. And so in other words, poor families, you know, often with widowed mothers, deposit their children in orphanages because they're unable to provide for them. So this is this is the end result, like, of... <laughs> of everything that we've been talking about and yeah. we've seen this happen in the uh, islamic uh, orphanage um, yeah exactly how we call it in before. english uh, we've seen this before in many cases um and it's just like uh, it's it's a uh, it's like uh, we were describing the situation that leads people to the to extreme like you know poverty and desperation and then when they go to the most extreme measure which is letting go of their children putting them in these institutions they go there and they get harassed. It's really like... It's and, and what happens then? Then the sectarian authorities come and say, hey, you're targeting us, exactly. you can't do this. They start yeah. defending these institutions and the, and the people committing these actions. Right. Not a very uh, bright episode, not a very happy one. So basically what we're expecting is um, we have no idea what's going to happen on the prime minister or the cabinet formation uh, end. Uh, we'll see what's going to happen now. And as we were uh, talking about before the show, it's not a great time for actually doing work. You know, they got to take their Christmas vacations. The politicians, they got to go skiing in Switzerland. Exactly. They Nobody, just they just yeah. got back from their holiday for Independence Day, which apparently they take outside of the, the country. So, I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's raining. Yeah, It's raining. I mean, you know, Nobody wants to work this. Yeah. Except us. Uh, and you could probably <laughs> hear that in the background. <laughs> anyway, that's it for this week. We'll be back next week for the final episode of this season. Till then, my name is Nizar Hassan. I'm Benjamin Red, And I'm Taimur Azhari. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.